Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Cargo of Bricks. Now this week's guest is Ruth Dudley Edwards, who makes some surprising admissions about life during lockdown. She tells us about her rediscovery of poetry and the micropolitics of wildfowl in one of London's most beautiful public gardens. So Ruth, how, how was it for you? Well, it was um, strange as it was for everyone. I began being very um, relaxed about it and saying, do we really need this? I, I wasn't at all sure that we should be rushing into lockdown. Um, I was wrong. But I think I also started with this endless repetition of what Manuel used to say on Faulty Towers. You know, I know nothing. I know nothing. And one thing I was aware of all the time was that the world appeared to be full of people who had the answers. And actually, I felt almost nobody knew what was going on. And it's perfectly clear that was true of our government, um, the government next door, every government in Europe. And um, we're still seeing it happening. Um, so a bit more humility, I think, and a bit more listening to uh, a wider range of advice than simply epidemiologists um, would have been a good idea. But So I started um, saying, is it really necessary and being a bit uh, defiant? Um, but when the orders came through, I thought one has to do the right thing, and I did the right thing. I was also rather arrogantly saying, I'll be fine on my own because I'm used to being on my own. I, I'm a writer, for heaven's sake. I spend most of my working life on my own. Um, and I, But um, a friend of mine got completely stuck because he was in the job, a residential job, and he had to leave where he was living. So I invited him in at the beginning, and am I glad he was there? Yes, extremely glad, and I think he's glad he was here as well. Because I don't know what it's like being completely on your own for three months, even with the phone calls and the rest of it. So I've no idea how I would respond to that. But as it is, I've got somebody I can swap stories with about the day and the rest of it. And he's been working throughout. So there's a, there's a life out there. And I've also pushed the boundaries what we're allowed to do. I mean, they said we could go out for exercise. Uh, I went out for very long walks every day, something I've never done voluntarily. I'd only go for walks with friends for the sake of it. Became deeply interested in the waterfowl in St. James's Park because I'm lucky enough to live very close to the park, I think is the most beautiful one I've ever seen in my life. And um, much to my surprise and that of my friends and who see me putting up photographs on Facebook, I've become deeply concerned about the lives of the swan family and the coot family and the Egyptian geese. And I check nervously every day about the number of the young and where they're at and has a seagull eaten one of them and are the crows up to no good. So that's been extraordinary for me and slowing down. I started on uh, pretty well on day one. I thought I'll try to do something useful in these walks and I started learning a poem every day. Now, I have a terrible memory for poetry, so I can learn it in the morning and have forgotten it in the evening. But still, I was getting in tune with these poems. Again, I've never really read poetry. I'm too impatient. But now I was having to adapt to the pace of it. After a couple of months of that, I started listening to poetry more. So I've become very attached to W.H. Auden, for instance. And I'm listening to him reading the poetry. And the one I listened to for the last two days, I've listened to it twice. And I'll probably listen to it again today, is In Memoriam 
W.B. Yeats. Absolutely wonderful poem, which dwells to an extent on the madness of Ireland, which was, of course, the inspiration for Yeats. So it's been, it's opened me up in all sorts of ways, for which I'm grateful. Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, you say about St. James's Park, it's the most beautiful park in the world. Is that something you always thought, or is it this kind of reinvestigation of your local? And I, I emphasize that. For a lot of people, London, the center of London, is not a local place. It's a place of national or international significance. If you meet Americans in America somewhere and you tell them you're from the United Kingdom, they go, are you in London? Because that's their that's their focus. But is it something you always thought, or is it something you have come to think or feel or understand because of lockdown and that slowing down process? I always thought it was the most beautiful park in the world. Um, And if I was walking somewhere, I would choose to go through it. But I was always going through at speed. I wasn't stopping and looking at things. I was going from A to B. Uh, I might go for a walk in there with a friend, but we were talking. I never actually stopped and looked at it. Uh, The very first poem I learned almost as a piece of homework for myself for the duration was the one about um, I have no time we have no time to stop and stare and I've learned in a way I haven't in a long life to stop and stare at certain things I mean (laughs) signets are the obsession at the moment Um, the behavior of birds how they differ to what extent do the different species fight with each other what what are the relate are the pigeons taking over? Is there resentment about all these pigeons coming in because they're not welcome in Trafalgar Square anymore? And that's another thing. I, I've walked around the inner London when it's been empty much more than obviously in a way I never did, looking at things. So I was passing Trafalgar Square in probably the second week. It was empty apart from a man with a hawk. Now, it's not something you associate with Trafalgar Square, which is usually full of about a thousand tourists. So I went down and had a chat with him. And he explained that he was in charge of the hawk that uh, frightened off the pigeons. And I said, but there aren't any pigeons in Trafalgar Square. And he said, of course not, because there are no tourists. And anyway, the hawk puts them off. So I said, why isn't he frightening them off in St. James's Park? where the pigeons are pinching food all the time. And he said, because we're not allowed to go into the royal parks. There's a bylaw against it. So you learn things. And then he said, have you seen the kestrels? And the kestrels were actually nesting at the top of Nelson's Pillar. So he showed me the where they, they were. And, you know, this wouldn't happen to me normally. And then I passed every day on the, the steps on the way down to St. James's Park. These two people doing the most extraordinary exercises from seven in the morning. My God. I mean, horrifying, a man and a woman. And they were running up these stairs with weights. They were doing press-ups. And we got a really nice relationship going, you know, a sort of waving and how are you? And then they were encouraging me and being delighted that I was walking a lot. And was I walking more? And why didn't I walk carrying weights? Well, I drew the line at that. Um, and then there was the smiling at people in the in the park, which one doesn't do in London. And then you'd slow down and obviously at a the right kind of distance, have a conversation about what was it about Egyptian uh, geese that made them so extremely stupid about getting through railings and that sort of thing. So it was just different from my normal life, which is just so full of politics and now and urgency and rush. So that I've enjoyed. Having said that, of course, I'm as frightened as anybody else for all the people who are suffering terribly during this. 
I want to. I want to come to that. I want to come to that. But I want to. Before we move to that, I think I want to stay with this sort of experience. What was it that prompted you to go to poetry? Because um, I've always been rather embarrassed about my um, impatience about poetry. Because I'm, I, I do appreciate very good lines. Because I've got friends who love poetry, and uh, it was always niggling at the on my conscience and wanting to do something useful with my time walking. That was the real thing, because I would have got bored very quickly walking with no distraction. I have to have a distraction, even now looking at the birds. You know, I'm, if I'm not listening to, to Auden reciting his poetry, um, I'm listening to a podcast. I'm trying very hard not to listen to news or news programs when I walk. That's my big discipline, to try hard not to listen to podcasts on bigger themes, more than unexpected themes. So I was trying to with my mind, I suppose. And you think that's maybe something to do with this this slowing down of time? You know, the kind of... Because in, in a way, when you look at the news cycles, one of the reasons why it's less attractive is because there's less content there. You know, even from the big macro stuff, you know, there are less diplomats meeting. There are no big treaties being signed because when they're trying... I mean, even look at the uh, formation of uh, the government in Dublin. Like, it took f- nearly five months to do that. And in part, that's to do with the fact because social distancing means you can't get the requisite number of people in the room. Uh, that There's a whole thing around uh, human signaling and trust building between people who are actually flesh and blood together. And that has a cumulative effect, I think, on making, on scooping out a, a lot of the actual current affairs content within the news flows like Twitter. I mean, a number of times I've seen people's name, ordinary people's name with RIP, trending on Twitter. And for me, that's an indication that somehow ordinary life is kind of breaking up through uh, th- this carapaced kind of area of hardened political discourse. I mean, that that's very true. And I've got terribly turned off because in the absence of any kind of normality, it seems to me the media have become ever more focused on one thing and ever more, ever more hysterical. And I don't enjoy hysteria. I watched faithfully for a few weeks that um, that five o'clock appointment with senior ministers or Boris Johnson, and I just couldn't bear what the media were doing. They were trying to do gotcha all the stuff. I think there people don't want gotcha at the moment. They want to understand what's going on. They don't want to be primed to explode with rage and fury. They want to know people are going to be all right. And a side effect of that has been frightening the wits out of them. Um, parents. I mean, it's preposterous that people are afraid to send their children to school. I was having a chat with an old friend of mine. We were just comparing the diseases we had at school in our youth, (laughs) that you just accepted there was measles. We both had measles. We both had mumps. We both had whooping cough. Uh, We both had, uh, did one of us have scarlet fever? I can't remember, but these things were taken for granted. I'm not saying we should be going back to those days, but I mean, now there's a bigger chance of a child being killed on the way to school in a road accident than there is of them catching something that will do them any harm. And we've just lost any kind of balance. And an awful lot of it is due to the media just hyping it all up because they're desperate for something. And they want, I mean, I I don't want to be unfriendly about the old. I am, after all, old. But when I listen to somebody being encouraged to say that it is an unutterable disgrace that his father, aged 93, um, who's who lost his wits poor man four years ago should not have died 
I'm sorry. We're old. We have to be allowed to die of something. And the hysteria about it has been preposterous, actually. One of the things that came through, and that, I mean, that's, that's interesting. And in a way, you can say it because you're in that kind of older bracket uh, and be hard lying about it because subjectively that's how you look upon it. But I, I think in some ways the, the the sort of reaction to the lockdown is a kind of a strange mix of objective understanding of the the nature of the threat, uh, understanding that the lockdown served a practical purpose in terms of disrupting the, um, the you know, the, infle- the infection pathways. But it's a lot to do with human psychology as well. Now, Ipsos Mori yesterday released this, uh, this survey with some data in it about attitudes towards the March lockdown, the timing of it, and also the uh, selective kind of um, lifting of that lockdown now in July. And what they found was 48%, nearly 50% of people thought it, it should have been done earlier and we shouldn't be lifting it quite so quickly. The next highest group is it started too late, uh, but they're now ready for uh, relaxing. Which category would you find yourself in there, Ruth? I'm in the, um, what was it, 18%. It started a bit too late. I'm not actually blaming them for that. It was just, what did people know? <laughs> Nobody knew. I know nothing. Um, I think it starts too late, but I think it has to be relaxed because people are pent up. You've got to think, we stop thinking about the quality of life. I mean, this applies to the old as well. You know, that we have actually ended up in a position where people desperate to see their grandchildren, desperate for human contact, have been essentially locked up alone to end their lives in total misery. There's no sense in that. That's That's gone wrong. That has completely gone wrong. Um, but also the pent-up energy. I mean, what the, I happened, I mean, bizarrely, to to be present at the first Black Lives Matter protest. This was because I had, um, it was the first time I'd actually been to visit a friend at home. So when was that? Four weeks ago or something. I think slightly illicitly, but we sat at a distance. And I was walking back, and I walked to Parliament Square, and I saw suddenly this great movement of people coming at me. And nearly everybody was young. But, you know, I'm an old hack, so I can't leave a protest. I can't ignore a protest. It took me back. So I had to wander around. And it seemed to me that struck me very much. This was young people delighted to have an excuse to get out of their houses because normally they wouldn't be let. But you say to your parents, but I have to do this, mum. I have to do this. It's principle. And you can get out. They were having a wonderful time, these kids. Now, I'd say about 55% of them were black. Um, So obviously 45% of them were white. But what I was looking out for as an old hack was who are the troublemakers? So I was looking for um, actually young white people, the Antifa people. And I found a little group of them. about six or seven, two with balaclavas, one wearing the balaclava, the other one was around his neck. So I said, what's with the balaclavas? I mean, they couldn't believe what they were talking to. You know, I was three times the age of everybody at the protest, as far as I could see. But anyway, they had to be polite to me. What else could they do at my age? So they explained they explained rather portentously, one of them said, um, I hear, uh, well, we, we have the balaclavas because we might be required to do direct action. I said, okay. 
weren't you worried about the virus that you were all worried about yesterday? And he had this moment of truth and he said, we're all bored. Then he remembered that he was a revolutionary and got back to it, you know. I ended up being kettled outside Downing Street, which was an interesting experience, um, and seeing the, the kneeling of the police officers, which I think was absolutely dreadful thing to do. Well, a, let's not drift, let's not drift into the whole politics of it. We're, we're on holiday from that. Uh... Yeah, but it's the board. It's, it, Mick, it's the board youngsters. They were always going to erupt. Yeah, um, and they didn't when they'd been enjoying Extinction Rebellion for a while, and then that was sort of taken off the streets essentially. Yeah. And one of the things I've observed at some interest is they're sort of competing little protests now with people getting very fed up that all the spotlight is on Black Lives Matter and the Extinction Rebellion people are having little little protests now just to say we're here still. And then I saw a gay and lesbian and trans protest of no more than about thirty people at. Um, Trafalgar Square, just to say, and we're here as well. So that's just uh, an outpouring. But but boredom, the kids were yeah. bored. And that's why the riots are happening on the housing estates. We couldn't have kept everybody locked up for any longer. There comes a moment, yeah. you have to say, the quality of life matters. And apart from the fact that, the, that I, I was really anxiously looking at the little businesses that I value so much. You know, the day that my newsagent came back, first one back in place I live in Long Street, nothing happening there. It's theatre land I live in. And it was so exciting to see him back. And every day we have a conversation about what's happening. And look, this thing has opened and this has opened. And yes, and what that means. And the little cafe that I love opened the end of last week. And that's so exciting. And I've been there to have a quick drink and say hello and welcome them back. And they're the thing, and I listen a lot. If I listen to anything on the radio, it's mostly phone-ins, you know, where you listen to ordinary people talking about what it's like for them, and what was absolutely necessary. <laughs> we don't, we don't destroy the economy because, again, because of the single-mindedness of the media, everybody focused how many people have died from coronavirus. No grasp that protecting the NHS should not mean putting at risk vast categories of people who need treatment. And a lot more people are going to die of illnesses. Um, I mean, we'll probably end up with more people dead as a result of protecting the NHS than might otherwise. You know? There's a number of important lessons, I think, uh, that you hint at. This idea, I mean, I, I love, you know, coming from yourself, Ruth, you know, who's who has a formidable reputation in the public space, you know, that I was wrong, you know, uh, and then the following insight, I know nothing. Which is, you know, in a, in a way, it's not shocking because you've got an historic, you know, a, a, a background in history, and the, the historian and the historical or the researcher into history starts from that premise that I know nothing, and that it's really about trying to investigate mm-hmm. all of that. But what do you think we have learned about ourselves, uh, both as individuals, but perhaps uh, more widely in society out of this period? I think that, well, certainly I can speak more for London than anywhere else, but um, but also the phone-ins from all over the UK, really. Um, there was a terrible denigration of ordinary people that was going on from the media again. And partly this was to do with Brexit. They were the ones who voted Remain. They were seen to be stupid. There was all that sort of stuff and all the bad feeling. And a great feeling among people that they were being despised. 
and that they were accused of being all sorts of things, racist and all the rest of it, and they weren't like that. And yet, I think there's a great pride that has arisen, latterly, because there's the discover, the rediscovery of neighbourhoods, the discovery of all the people who are being kind. I mean, I can't tell you in the first few weeks how many calls I was getting asking if I wanted my shopping done. Since I was going out for an hour and a half every morning to walk, I didn't need my shopping done. But, but you know, there were people all over the place. The, the, the place I used to do Pilates, were sending out uh, a notice every single day saying this is the phone number if you need anything and we have these volunteers that will do it for you. A great friend of mine who lived in um, a rural part of England, she'd moved there about 10 or 15 years ago, she used to talk about everybody being rather unfriendly but she didn't really know how to get through to them. She's now become friendly with everybody in the neighbourhood, she's been volunteering uh, every day she's been doing things for people. She is enjoying it so much, she utterly loves it and she says the whole spirit of the whole neighbourhood is utterly wonderful. And I think people are finding that up and down the country and they're saying again, but we're nice. And, you know, and we're not racists and we all get on together and we help each other when we need it. Um, and we're sick of being tripped up because we've used a word we shouldn't have used, <laughs> a term, you know. Um, so I think the rediscovery of pride, that we're nice people. Uh, and I mean, I know... Um, I mean, I've been making a lot of offers, people too, but I am thrilled by the way people are helping each other. There is one thing I would like to say, though, Mick, about um, the long-term influences, because I was having a chat yesterday, as usual, with the, the news agent, And uh, he said he was looking at, as his customers came back, there was a division between them. He said there were the ones, and he said, like you and me, he said, he was talking about me, you know, who just went out as much as they could anyway, you know, and were never actually closed down. And then there were the ones who'd been locked up for several, many weeks. And he said, they're so frightened. They've just been conditioned to being frightened. They come scurrying in here, they'll get their newspaper and then they scurry back home. And he said, I don't know how they get coaxed out of it. I've had it with a couple of close friends to whom it's happened. And it's very weird, really competent people, horrified that I've been going out horrified at the risk and there are people who would have laughed at risk three or four months ago so if we ever get put in this position again we've got to remember that the mental health of people is what we have to hang on to and the good side of it is the neighborliness that was increased but the terrible side of side effect is uh, frightening people into fear fear of illness paranoia all those things we've got to think about those things again can't rush at it. Yeah, and I think anger is kind of uh, uh, very much related to fear in that in that particular respect. But uh, tell me this: how, how long do you think we're going to remember these lessons? And do you think any of them are going to outlift the lifting of the lockdown? And if so, how and for how long? It depends who we are. I think individuals will. Individuals in that area where my friend lives will always remember that this is how they got to know X, Y, and Z, and this is the help they got through the, from this neighbor. Individual acts of kindness will be remembered. That's the big thing that gets remembered. Uh, will governments be any wiser how to act? I don't know. Um, will the media learn, I ask myself. I mean, the media became, many of them became hated as a result of those press conferences. Will the media pull back on gotcha journalism. 
I'm really interested that there's a new uh, radio. Uh, Times Radio has started up. I listened to it for the first time today or yesterday. Its selling point is we will do news programs and we won't interrupt. We will give people time to talk. And that's what they discover the, the gap in the market is. So Absolutely. Absolutely. So one final question. Will you continue to read and listen to poetry? I will, because I'm going to go on walk. I'm, I can't leave the waterfall now. I'm terribly anxious. I see that some of the signets have grown up and now they're, they're adolescents. And I'm watching the way that they show a little independence of the parents, but they're still very... I'm always going to be with them. I, I, I won't give this one up. If by any... Like this morning, I, for various reasons, I couldn't go out at seven, which is the time I normally go out. But I feel the agitation to go out. I've got to go and see them got to see you know what the politics of it are um the the coots have taken over a little section that the swans had before you know is there any agro going on um all of that and the poetry is mattering an awful lot to me and listening to podcasts about very strange thing there's a wonderful podcast called uh, by malcolm gladwell called revisionist history oddly enough which is about looking at things that we think we know about and we then discover we know nothing about because that's one of the things I'm carrying away, how little we actually know and how much we think we know. And if we could remember in our normal lives how little we know, I think that would be a big improvement. Cargo of Bricks is brought to you by Slugger O'Toole. Support us by going to sluggerotool.com and hit the donor box. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from.